I'm Rick Houston, and this is my top five. What's up, y'all? It's me, Aaron Beard, 93, and I'd like to welcome you back to the Motorsports Beat. Today's topic is yours, another episode of the Top 5, where we take the stars behind the cars and spotlight the five races that have been important to their lives. Now, today's guest is a veteran journalist helping to protect NASCAR's past as it builds toward the future. He's preceded me both in media centers and in the podcast game, and he has ambitions of preserving the stories of the sports past. You can listen to him weekly on the Scene Vault podcast. You can follow him at the Scene Vault and support him on Patreon at patreon.com slash Scene Vault podcast. I am, of course, talking to the wonderful Rick Houston. How are you doing today, Rick? <laughs> man, I'm doing great after that introduction, man. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's what I'm here for, man. Trying to make everybody feel good and look good. You know what I'm saying? So, um, Rick, obviously you preceded me in in the NASCAR media center. You were there before social media, before the way it became now. Um, I'm just curious, what was a normal, quote-unquote, weekend like covering a race back in, say, the 90s? I know you did a lot of bush races, for example. Well, uh, a a normal weekend uh, would would typically – be travel on Thursday, uh, wherever the race location was. And then of course, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the racetrack, and then, uh, fly back or drive back on Monday. Uh, if the races were, were closer, uh, you know, we would of course just drive back after the race. So, um, especially after, uh, my wife and I got married and we had kids and everything, I I did make an attempt to, uh, get home as quickly as possible. And that meant, um, more than once I've actually driven back from Daytona, um, the, the night of the 500. And of course that makes for a long day and everything, but it, it was worth it for that extra day at home. Right. I'm jealous of that. I'm curious, you know, you, like I mentioned in the intro, you preceded me to this podcast game. You guys have one of you and Steve, I feel like I have one of the more unique podcasts in the realm. It, it's been personally for me, it's been very beneficial. I've learned a lot of history I didn't know about, but where did the idea for that podcast come together? Was it something that had been brewing for a while? Well, Steve and I, of course, have been working on the Saint Vault project for uh, right at three years now. Uh, I, of course, working for Saint and and being there and and having all the issues that I that I was a part of. Uh, I'm a collector by nature, so when I was at Saint, I actually started uh, collecting the the issues every issue up until that point. And then after I left saying I was able to, to get caught up and, and actually round out my collection all the way from uh, the very first issue in April, 1977 through the very last issue that rolled off the presses in um, December of 2009. So I, I have 32 years of newspapers and they're all right here behind me. And Aaron, I, I can't tell you what a wonderful research archive that is. Uh, there are so many stories in, in, in those issues that have been forgotten. And, and Steve and I have been uh, trying to figure out a way to get them all preserved, get them all digitized, and at some point, hopefully get them uh, or make them all available 
available online. And out of that project, and it's been, again, three years, and it's been a lot of ups and downs and a lot of uh, roadblocks and stumbling blocks and legal issues and all that kind of thing. Um, But out of that, it grew the idea, it came the idea to do a podcast. And I had done a NASCAR history podcast probably 2000, 2000, well, uh, around the year 2008, nine, somewhere in there. Uh, Never got anywhere with it. Uh, but I had some interviews from, from that in the can already. And, and Steve and I used those when we got started. And then we started doing interviews, original interviews, new interviews. And I love the podcast format because there's no time limit. So we can sit down and we can talk to somebody for an hour, two hours, um, a couple of weeks ago. Well, before Christmas, uh, I, I sat down or right after Christmas, I sat down with Jeff Hammond and Aaron, I was at his shop for five hours and we talked on the record for about, for about three. And and so we, we go pretty deep into our, into our conversations. And and I think that's what people have responded to uh, is, is the fact that these conversations aren't just, a Q and a with standard pad answers. And, you know, we're not asking questions that, that people have already been uh, asked a thousand times. We're trying to come up with fresh questions and, you know, it, it seems like almost every week we hear a new angle on an event that we thought that we knew pretty well. Uh, you know, we've all heard, we all know about the 1979 Daytona 500. But um, I talked to Jeff Hammond, and he was, of course, in the pits working for Cal Yarbrough and, and Junior Johnson when that race took place. And so he, he was telling me about that. Uh, he, he told me that when they heard over the PA, of course, they couldn't see the wreck happen because they were in the pits, and that took place in turn three. Uh, but he told me when they heard that uh, there was a fight going on, they actually started running to to get to where the fight was of course that's <laughs> that's 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 <laughs> close to a mile away and yeah. jeff said that he looked back and he saw junior johnson take off his headset and start packing up the pits and that's a perspective of that event that i had never heard before so i it, it's just i like i like to interview people when their guards uh, aren't up uh, I, I like to interview people who who are willing to tell the story, who are willing to tell their story without a filter. And I'm not looking for any dirt, but I'm just looking for the way that they really saw it. Mm-hmm. So such a valuable perspective. I, I, think that's, I, like. I think that's why people respond to it the way that they do. Very nice. It's a valuable perspective. Like I said, it's helped me a lot. Like I just messaged you the other day and talked about the ones you had with Parsons the other day, Bill Parsons. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was born in 1993. I, I mostly knew him was in the booth and stuff more than I did as a driver. So it was neat to get that perspective. You were born when? 1993. Oh man. You didn't need to tell me that, man. <laughs> I do feel old. <laughs> <laughs> good night man uh, oh okay all right yeah. gotcha okay all right uh, i'm good now. see there are people there are people six and seven years younger than me doing this stuff now i don't think i'm the, the young one here um 
In terms of the podcast, you know, when, when I want to do something like this, it's easy for me to get a hold of a PR rep or get somebody on a Zoom call like we're doing right now and roll through it. But, I mean, some of the people y'all are working with to get on the pod, I, I don't know how many of them use Zoom or how many of them are even on this technology as heavily as that. Is that how are the logistics around getting some of the older stars on the podcast? I guess is my question. Well, of course, during the pandemic, during the during the the heaviest part of the lockdown, when we were when we were staying at home basically twenty four seven, we did do uh, several interviews via Zoom. Uh, we interviewed Bill Gardner, who was the Guard Racing car owner, uh, via Zoom. We interviewed Daryl Waltrip via Zoom. Ricky Craven via Zoom, and. I think that might have been it. Um, there might have been there might have been one other, but other than that, I, I really do try to make an effort to sit down with somebody uh, in, in person, face to face. And of course, we stay you know distance and all that. And I wear a mask when I get a, get there and and put it on afterwards uh, as I pack up. But it, there's just something about that that person to person close look them in the eye contact that, that I think really helps the podcast as well. And uh, another thing that I think works in our favor is that when we go to somebody, they are in their element. They, they are in their, uh, we've interviewed people in their homes, their shops, their offices. And, and if they're in their element, I think that they feel more comfortable and are uh, willing to uh, share a little bit more. So I, I think that's the way that it's kind of, worked out very nice i don't have too many people around me here in indiana but i have to keep that in mind next time i'm out to get out on the road again um <laughs> i guess the last thing i'll ask before we get started obviously you talked about wanting to preserve the history and i see it behind you i wish i could be sitting in there reading all that right now but what are what are some of the next steps for you guys i know you had the whole deal last year where you were had the deal with marcus limonis and you had had the walking challenge and you met that. Um, what are looking to 2021, 2022, what are the next steps towards making that reality come true? Well, the, the first thing, and I think that the most important thing uh, is, is to get these issues preserved. Uh, we, we have to get them digitized because the fact is that's, that's 32 years, that's 32 years worth of old kindling. And it, right. it would not take much for that to go up in flames and it, it to be lost forever. And and I can't I can't even imagine what it would be like to try to assemble this archive again. I don't know that it would be possible. I I think I, I think that the uh, I think that Appalachian State up in Boone I think that they have most of the issues, but they don't have all of them. So if I don't get these preserved, I, I don't know what's going to happen. So uh, that that's step number one. Step number two would be uh, working out a, a, a process with American City Business Journals, which is Scene's parent company, which which technically officially owns them, uh, which uh, they they officially own the brand. And then it, the the last step would be to put it all online 
So uh, it, it's just been it's it's been one hurdle after another. Uh, I did follow. I w- I did. Uh, I was able to complete my um, my goal of getting to five thousand miles, uh, lifetime miles walking and running, and so and and Marcus is going to follow through. I, I really and truly believe that he's going to follow through on his promise to uh, help me help us get this all digitized and made available. So uh, until that happens, it is kind of just waiting and seeing and look and, here, and here. clicking the, and clicking the, and clicking my email every, every 10 minutes to see, uh, to see if he's uh, responded and, and making sure that he's on still on board. So. <laughs> well, I hope it comes to fruition. It'll be amazing if it happens. Um, well, you and me both brother. I hear that. Well, we've we've been talking about you trying to preserve the sports history, but this podcast is actually about your history. This is about your top five races, five races that have meant a lot to you. And I'd like to go ahead and get started. So if you could just roll me through your first race. Well, I think that the the first race that really stands out to me, number one, would be the first race that I ever watched flag to flag with any kind of real interest, and that was the 1989 Daytona 500. Um, I, I I grew up a baseball fan. I, I mean, I, Aaron, I worshipped baseball players in particular and the Cincinnati Reds, big red machine era in particular. I, I mean, I, I thought Pete Rose walked on water. Uh, he he was my hero, <laughs> and of course, when he had all of his trouble, and uh, I, I kind of got a little jaded on that. And um, my best friend from high school, his name's Joey Step. He, you know, invited me to come over to his house one Sunday afternoon. Not even in particular to watch the race. He just invited. You know, we were just going to get together and hang out once after one Saturday afternoon, and it just happened to be the 1989 Daytona 500. And I watched that race and I was, I mean, I was immediately captured by the, 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 the pageantry of it all. I was immediately captured by the color of the race cars. I was immediately captured by the action. And, you know, a a lot of people complain about cars going in single file for a race. Well, to me, those cars are maybe going in single file, but they're going in single file at 200 miles an hour. And so I, I think that in and of itself, uh, the the fact that they're able to do that without crashing every lap is, is to me something that's that's un, unbelievable. So the 1989 mm-hmm. Daytona 500 really stands out to me. Uh, of course, that was the race that Darrell Waltrip won. Um, I was living in Nashville, Tennessee at the time. So he was a local guy. Uh, they, they talked about him being a man of faith and I'm a man of faith. I actually graduated from college with a degree in religion that year. Uh, I was, when I watched the Daytona 500, I was in my, the 89 Daytona 500. I was just starting my final semester in college. And so, um, 
he was a man of faith. I was a man of faith. And, and that race car that he drove, that orange number 17 Tide sponsored race car, uh, to me will always be one of the most beautiful race car dri- race cars that ever took through a racetrack. So the 1979 Daytona 500, uh, 1989 Daytona 500 really and truly stands out to me. Uh, is very important to me because it was the first race I watched and I watched it at my best friend's house and his mom, Sandy, and I've mentioned her many times on the podcast. She's actually been on the podcast. Joe has too. Uh, and he actually did the music for my podcast, but to, to watch it with them and to watch it in that setting and, uh, to, to be there that day and to pick up my very first copy of, uh, what was still grand national scene at that time. Well, what's this? You know, so that, that was a big day for me. A very, very big day. So 89, the people you were watching with, did they have, did they have a horse in the fight? Were they rooting for somebody or was it pretty unbiased for you to kind of pick your favorites? Oh no. Uh, everybody, everybody in that family had a different, uh, favorite driver. And that's what made it so fun. Okay. Sandy, Joe's mom was a, well, to this day, she is the biggest NASCAR fan ever that I've ever met, ever known. And to be honest with you, Aaron, everything that I've ever done in this sport ever has been with her in mind. Will Sandy like this? Would Sandy be interested in this? Would Sandy think this is cool? <laughs> so Sandy was Sandy is to this day a huge Richard Petty fan and a huge okay. Harry Gant fan. So by by default, they became my favorite drivers. Uh, Joe <laughs> liked Darrell Waltrip. And so, you know, him being my buddy, I'm going to pull for, for him. Joe's sister, uh, he, she, she basically liked whoever the rest of the family didn't. So, so it, it might be, it might be different on any given week. She, she just liked to be, uh, the one who kind of created the stir a little bit. And then Joe's dad, Joe senior, uh, he was a big Earnhardt fan. So, they they were able to sit down and they were able to bicker and they were able to laugh and they were able to pick at each other. And that's one of the things that drew me to the sport is they were able to laugh and bicker and tease and, you know, jabber back and forth. But at the end of, at, but at the, end of the day, they, they still loved each other. They were still a fan and everybody laughed about it and went on to the next race. So <laughs> that's amazing. Today like it's like if you if you don't like my driver, it's a blood sport, and I'll, I'll cut I'll cut you on social media. I'll talk ugly about you on social media, and it just gets so mm-hmm. ugly on social media. But that day, it was just fun to watch them all bicker and laugh and be a family. So that that's kind of what drew me in initially. That's awesome. So. Well, first, I got to ask, the, the dance moves from DW and Victory Lane, that wasn't what sold you on the race, was it? <laughs> well, I, I think my love for the sport was in spite of that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely in spite uh, of that. Uh, I couldn't resist. That's one of the things I always think of when I think of that race. Oh, yeah. Looking, I guess, 
I guess moving on from that, was it something where like after that race you were just immediately a fan and looking for more races to watch or did it come on oh, yeah. gradually after that? No, I, Aaron, I'm the kind of person I can't just watch a race and say, well, that's cool. I'll look forward to the next week or whatever and, you know, let it be that. I, I'm the world's worst to get, well, for lack of a better term, I'm the world's worst to get obsessed with something. It wasn't just good enough for me to read Winston Cup scene. I wanted to write for Winston Cup scene. It just, it wasn't good enough for me to watch a race on television. I wanted to go to every race from then on. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, we went to Talladega that year to the hall of fame in Talladega. And that was before cell phones. And that was before digital photographs and everything. We got back to Nashville that afternoon and I couldn't just take my photos to the photo mat and get them developed. I had to get them developed one hour photo. I had to have them right then. So <laughs> when I got into racing, I got into racing and I was obsessed and I jumped in head first and I was, I was ready to know everything that there was to know. And you're still in it to this day. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm watching from the outside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. That's fair. Well, that is, that's a good one. That's a great start. It's going to be hard to top that. What have you got for me second? Well, uh, honestly, I'm just going to take them chronologically. Um, Okay. The 91 Bristol race, uh, Bristol spring race was my very first credentialed race ever. And that is the race that really got me started, uh, on, on my path to getting into the sport professionally. It, it was a, it was a race that I learned, uh, some important lessons. Uh, number one being I had to separate, I had to, at least begin to figure out a way to separate being a um, race fan from being somebody who worked in it professionally. Um, I, my assignment was for a magazine and, and it was to do a story on Richard Petty. And so I had an interview set up with Richard Petty and Aaron, I, I, I talked to him and I know for a fact that he thought he had to have thought that there was something wrong with me mentally because my, my entire interview, I stuttered and I stammered and in, in the back of my mind, I thought the entire interview, here I am, I'm talking to Richard Petty. He's the King. He won 200 races. He won seven Daytona 500s. He won seven championships. Sorry about that. No biggie. So, in my mind, I was I was being a fan and talking to one of my heroes, and so mm -hmm. I had to figure out a way to um, kind of separate those two. I had to I had to learn to be professional and and uh, uh, try to be objective and to write stories in, in which I tried not to give my opinion too much. Uh, I, I just tried to write the facts as as close as I could get them. Uh, and, and let the reader decide, make their own mm -hmm. dis 
determination on, on how they felt about a subject. Now, if I was writing a commentary, if I was writing a column, oh yeah, you better believe I was going to tell my side of the story. You better believe I was going <laughs> to, you know, to tell what I thought about the situation. But it, it, when it came to a news story or a race lead, I, I tried to be as, as objective as possible. And I began to learn that lesson. I began to learn that lesson at Bristol that day when I interviewed Richard Petty, because I could not look at him as this, this superhero. I had to look at him as another human being. So that that's something. And honestly, that's something that's still hard for me because that's Richard Petty. That's the king. So how do, how do you make that separation? So, um, that, that was probably a a very important lesson for me again, to learn, um, you you could, you can't put these guys on pedestals. And and Mm -hmm. I began to learn that at Bristol in the, in the spring of 91, um, my, my first credentialed race. I'm just, I'm, my mind's slightly blown that it's your first credentialed race. And the first guy, we're just going to go talk to the the seven-time champ over there. <laughs> that is, you want to talk about jumping straight off into the deep end? Well, I set my sights high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I set like, my man, sights high. Like, man, you don't want to talk to, like, Sterling first or Ernie? Er, There's a lot of guys in here, man. <laughs> no, man, That's my crazy. assignment was Richard Petty. I had to go with the assignment. I hear you. What is that first feeling when you're first at the track, you're there credential for the first time. What's that like the first time you're walking in and it's Bristol of all places. What's that experience like? Well, again, I I was, I was, I was, I was looking at it. I, I, I was looking at it as, as a, as a, as a reporter, but I still also had a lot of fan in me. And at that time, I probably had more fan in me than I had reporter. But that was my first race in, in uh, going into the infield. There's Richard Petty. There's Harry Gant. There's Leonard Wood. There, there, my, my max race cards had come to life. My Winston mm-hmm. Cup scenes had come to life. And it, it, it was, it was really, you know, and, and it being Bristol and there not being any kind of garage there. And that was before they actually allowed the, the transporters in, they actually had the box trucks that they drove from their transporters outside the racetrack to, uh, or into infield. So it, it was a lot more, the, the, the sensation was a lot more quaint. It, it was a lot more of a, of a small town. Uh, just, just walking around and seeing everybody. So yeah, that, that was a, that was a cool sensation. (laughs) How soon was it after that first opportunity with the magazine before more opportunities came? Was it something that kind of stuck with you for a while for another one arose for you? That was in, that was in April of 91 and went back to Nashville. And at some point in the next month or so, I, I picked up a magazine on a on a newsstand in Nashville, uh, and, and it was a magazine called Dixie Racing News, and just you know, I picked up the phone and I called the number, and the publisher answered, and I said, "Hey, I'm interested in getting into NASCAR. Would there be any way I could come talk to you?" Yeah, sure. Come on, we need some help. 
And so next thing I know, I was in Yakinville, North Carolina, talking to this guy, and he hired me. And so I moved to North Carolina uh, in June of 91, I believe it was, and went to work for the publication. I was the editor, and I put it together. And uh, about two weeks after I got here, I stopped getting a paycheck because the money had run out. And and we got picked up by somebody and – uh, he he published it through the end of the, the NASCAR season. And by Thanksgiving, I was back in Nashville again. So yeah. trials and tribulations of an upcoming rider. Oh, you have no idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now it's different in my age. You can start a blog and if you play your cards right. That's what, that's what yeah. I did. I started blogging by myself and just build it. Absolutely. <clears throat> Well, I guess we can move on on to your third selection. What do you got for me next? Um, Aaron, my third selection would be probably the most difficult one of all uh, would be the 92 North Wilkesboro race. And I've, I've talked about this on our podcast before and I've, I've you know, blogged about it. But um, I, I, was in, I was in Nashville. And I had moved to uh, Virginia Beach to work for one racing newspaper and stayed about a month. And they quit paying the bills. So I I headed back to Nashville. And my ex-wife had gotten remarried at that point. And my son was calling another man daddy. And that that was a bad time. 92, 1992 was my my wilderness year. That that was a bad year. And so... um, I, I determined that I was going to uh, move to I was going to move to North Carolina, and I was going to get into racing. And I quit my job. I was working as a telemarketer, and I quit my job and I moved to North Carolina. And I drove to or went to uh, Martinsville that that fall, the October race, and stuck food. Um, well, actually, that would have been late September, Martinsville. Um, snuck food out of the press box, slept in my car. Uh, run out of gas at one point. And the next week I got to the racetrack expecting to do the same thing, sneak food out of the press box and sleep in my car. And I got to the racetrack on Friday morning and I found out that they, that they didn't serve food in the press box until Sunday. And, and I had no money. And when I say I had no money, I had not a cent. And um, I asked, uh, a buddy of mine to to borrow a quarter to make a phone call and that that tells you that dates you right there that i had to borrow a quarter to use for the pay phone i was going to make a phone call and he uh, i i hadn't told him anything about what was going on but he i guess he kind of sensed it and he gave me two dollars and that's what i bought my dinner with that night i bought a bag of potato chips and a baby ruth candy bar and um that night was a long night uh, that, that night was rock bottom. Uh, and I can tell you the date, it was October the 2nd, 1992. And, uh, mm-hmm. that, that night I, I prayed the most sincere prayer that I had ever prayed before or since. And the only two words that I could say were, Oh God, because I, I, I simply could not get the words out to, to get across what I was feeling and experiencing. <laughs> Uh, but the next morning, Deb Williams told me the story that I had written was going to be in the next week's issue. And uh, that wasn't a full-time job. Uh, but if I could have a story in the very best newspaper 
that there was in NASCAR, then maybe I did belong in NASCAR. And then I went up to the press box and the guy who'd given me the $2, he just happened to remember that the paper that he worked for, uh, the, they owned another newspaper up in the mountains near here and they needed a sports editor. And he asked me if I would be interested in that job. And, you know, I didn't ask anything about it. I didn't ask where it was, how much it paid, what the, what the job title would be or whatever. Uh, I, I said, yes. And I went and interviewed for that job. And I went to the Allegheny news up in Sparta, North Carolina, and I stayed there for two years. And that, that was probably the most important two years of my life because it, it helped me get on my feet. It, it helped me learn journalism. Uh, and it also gave me the experience I needed to go to work for Winston Cup scene full time. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. that, that October race at North Wilkesboro in 1992, that was, that was, the, that was the turning point of my, not only my career, but that, that was the turning point of my life. I mean, er, everything, everything since then took place as a result of that weekend. Man. I think of where to even start on this one. So it sounds like from everything you say, uh, the, the meaningfulness of this weekend was as much about the things that happened for you off track and even away from the track as it was about what happened. But as somebody who was at the track, how hard was it to kind of, I guess, try to do your job and do the things you need to do at the track when you've got all this going on around you? Was it something where like maybe the racing played kind of the back foot that weekend or how did that play out? Well, I think, I, I think certainly the racing was the racing for me personally was, was secondary. I, I was just trying, I was just trying to, I was just trying to survive physically and mentally, much less trying to survive in the sport. You know, you, you can ultimately, as much as you want it, you can get, you can, you can survive without a job in NASCAR, but I was worried about surviving period uh, i was i was worried about you know what was i going to do uh personally and professionally uh was i ever going to have a job was i ever going to be in another relationship you know it, it was just so much but mm-hmm. I, I can tell you that just like well martin's the week before had been rained out they ran it on monday so i had to stick around for another day um and at north wilkesboro uh, uh it rained again and the race was run on Monday and Jeff Bodine won both races. So yeah, I can tell you that. And I can tell you that the North Wilkesboro race, if I'm not mistaken, I think it went caution free. I'm pretty sure it went caution free at North Wilkesboro. There might've been one. There might've been one caution, but I think it might've went caution free. Okay. So, I can look it up in Winston Cup scene. <laughs> <laughs> Pull it out real quick. Um, yeah. What, I guess, going in before you hear from Deb and all about the opportunities that fell your way and stuff, what were you thinking, I guess, going into that morning? What were you feeling? And then by comparison, what were the feelings by the end of that day? Aaron, there's, there's no way to tell you what I was feeling because it was, it, it was as close to being, let's see. Well, it was, it was, it was rock bottom in my life. 
it, that, that again, you know, that, that was the weekend that my life turned around. But before I talked to Deb, before I talked to Jerry and he told me about the job, uh, there was a sense of helplessness. What am I going to do? I am hungry. And Aaron, I, I mean, uh, yeah, I've obviously made up for it since then, but I, I can remember. And one of the most, one of the strongest memories of that entire weekend is being in the press box and smelling the personal pan pizzas that other reporters were were able to afford to buy. There was a, there was a, like I think it was a Pizza Hut concession stand uh, downstairs. Uh, below in, in the concourse of the racetrack and they were able to buy personal pan pizzas and they brought those up to the press box and to smell that and to not be able to go down and, and buy one for yourself uh, that's that's pretty stout right there that's pretty stout mm-hmm. uh so I'm going to put this in the context for myself. One of the first races I got to cover was at Kentucky. And I was a getting ready to be done with college kid in an old beat up Sonoma, GMC Sonoma. I drove down there two and a half hours, not sure if the truck could make it. Sort of similar to you, I guess. I slept in the back of it at a truck stop through the weekend and tried to survive off media center food. And I remember thinking like, oh, this is what it takes to make it. But Every, every every year I went back to Kentucky until now it's obviously off the schedule, I would look because that truck stop was about two miles away from the track. And I could look from the top of the grandstands on race day over there and see that truck stop. And it was always like that reminder <laughs> to me of, you know, what yeah. I've been through and what, what you do to be yeah. here. Yeah. Was that, is yeah. it similar to that for you when you think of North Wilkesboro? Is that like, does that memory come back to you every time you think of that track? Well, I, I I drive by that racetrack, not not regularly because I only live like 20 miles away, um, just off the same highway that it's off of. But when I when I when I drive by that racetrack on on 421, I there's there are very there's very rarely a time that I don't think about the that that weekend in the media center parking lot. Um, it also happened to be that I proposed to my current wife at that racetrack a couple of years later. So, you know, you kind of got the, you kind of got the lowest of the low and the highest of the high at that same racetrack. So. Wow. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. That's a good way to make such a positive memory out of something that was once so challenging. It's amazing. Well, actually I didn't propose to her. She, she kind of fussed at me and I was, I was, you know, going through my speech and she kind of fussed at me and told me that we were going to be late for the movie. And so I just gave her the <laughs> ring without even actually asking. Okay. So it was, okay. we had been married 20, we had been married more than 20 years before I actually got the words out. Will you marry me? And <laughs> you know, so I, I, what did she I say yes then? This, this is all I said this is all a misunderstanding. <laughs> so that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Whew. Well, I guess we'll leave that one there. We'll let North Wilkesboro lie. Uh do you have race number four for me? Race number four would be the nineteen ninety two Hooters five hundred. Um August, well, October of 92 I, I was all but homeless i was sleeping in my car at the racetrack 
I got the job at the Allegheny News, and they were owned by the paper in North Wilkesboro. And so, of course, they at that time, they had a big interest in NASCAR. And so I got to cover the 1992 Hooters 500 for the paper in North Wilkesboro. And Aaron, on the way to the race, they told me to stop by the office, and they gave me a check for $300 to cover my expenses for the weekend. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, I thought I was, I, I, I thought I was, I, I mean, I thought I was Elon Musk. I thought I was the richest person <laughs> on the face of the earth rolling up into Atlanta with $300 in my pocket. And I mean, I was able to go to a restaurant and I was able to eat. I was able to pay for my motel. I was able to pay for a motel room. And I went to that race. And of course, there were so many things going on. It was Rich Bay's last race. The The championship was so close. Um, there were There were literally storylines everywhere you looked. And for that to be the first race that I ever went to and covered and actually had money in my pocket to cover it, that, that was a, that was a big day. That, that was, that was huge. (laughs) And it made for a good book too. (laughs) So I've heard not the one and not the one that David Poole wrote, the one that I wrote. (laughs) (laughs) Can I say both of them? Is that allowed? Um, Man. So what was what was the ambiance like at the track then? Because that that's the closest thing in that day we had to what we have now, where it's like best of best of four finishers basically. What was the vibe like at the track that weekend? Everything was electric, and 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 it was almost literally electric. It, 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 there was the emotion with Richard Petty. And, of course, him being my favorite race car driver and everybody's favorite race car driver and him not driving anymore, there was that. There was the there was the, the expectation of the championship battle. Uh, we There were literally six drivers who could have mathematically won it. Three of those, you know, Alan and, and Bill and, and Davey would have had to fallen out on the pace laps for them to win, basically. But they were still in contention. And in a year like 1992, anything literally could have happened. And so it wouldn't have been that big a shock if everybody if everybody had fallen out on the on the pace laps and, and a Mark Martin or a Kyle Petty or a Harry Gant somehow slip in there. Um, but then... On the pace laps, Richard Petty's out front, and then these these Apache attack helicopters come and they follow the the field around the racetrack. And I mean, they are they are so low you could look and you could see the pilots in, in the cockpit very very plainly. You could see the pilots in in mm-hmm. the cockpit. So there was just an electricity that I, I think that was really very real and very sincere and not manufactured. Mm-hmm. How did I, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. I apologize. I, <laughs> I didn't mean to say that out loud. <laughs> I'm still trying to stay credentialed, man. Don't get me in trouble. Here. No, I'm just playing. Um, how do you just soaking all of that day in, how long did it take? 
I guess even beyond the, the conclusion of the race for everything that played out that day to soak in. I mean, Allen's rise to the championship, Bill coming just close, Davey in the wreck, Richard being done. Well, I, I think so for me, it, the the championship began to soak in on April the 1st, 1993. And then it finally did soak in right. on July, uh, I think, 13th of 1993 when we lost first Allen and then Davey. Um, for that championship to come down like it did and then to less than, oh, what, six months later, seven months later, uh, eight, well, I guess it's eight months. Um, for that championship to come way, come down to the way it did to three drivers, and then for uh, just eight eight months later, for for two of those three to be gone, that 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 just didn't compute, and it still it still doesn't compute. I, there there are days when I still feel like it would be possible to pick up the phone and call Davey or call Allen. Um, but for them to be gone so soon after that incredible race when they were all so very, very, very alive and very competitive. Yeah, that was, that, that was a bit, that was a, that was a big, that was a big weekend for NASCAR. For sure. And as you mentioned, it was a big weekend for you. I guess, I mean, and that's obviously the last race of, of that season going into the next season at that point, but how much did it do for you personally going into that off season? You know, you get the $300 payday, you kind of get starting to get that feeling like I can do this. Is that about the time you're starting to get that mojo going? Well, I, I knew that I could do it when seen published my first story. Now that very that first story that I wrote for saying it was very heavily edited. Uh, I, I think I think that I counted maybe one sentence <laughs> that hadn't been changed <laughs> in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Um, but the fact that my byline had been insane that that was that was good enough for me to give me the the sense that I that I could do it. Going into going into um, uh, Atlanta in '92, um, that was you know obviously a huge race. But 1993, I, I think, was the year that I got on my feet as a journalist. Uh, I, I think I did. Uh, I think I did a few more uh, stories for Scene in '93, but not. You know, it wasn't a regular thing. It was, you know, kind of hit and miss. But then at the beginning of the 1994 season, they actually put me on retainer. And that meant that I was responsible for two features a month. And that wasn't a full-time job, but it, it was kind of to the point where I was bringing home more money doing freelance than I was in my full-time job. When I, when I was at the Allegheny News, um, I was bringing home $150 a month or, or a week. And mm -hmm. so that, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was poor when I was sleeping in my car, but I was, I was poor every day when I was working at the Allegheny News mm -hmm. and I would write, I, I would go to the, I would go to the grocery store as late as I could on Monday and, and write a check that I knew was bad and, and hope that it wouldn't get deposited and go through until I was able to deposit my paycheck on Wednesday afternoon. So, uh, but 
yeah, 92, the Hooters 500, that got me started. But I think 93, the races I was able to go to and working at the Allegheny News, that's, that's what really prepared me for a full-time job in NASCAR. Gotcha. Well, regardless, that 92 finale, I can't imagine what it was like to have been there. I'm jealous on that oh, one. Oh, yeah. But yeah. It was cool. Just an amazing memory, I'm sure. Yeah. I guess I guess that leads us to, last but not least, number five. Number five would be the 1994 Hooters 500, again, in Atlanta. Uh, Aaron, that was, that was my very first race as a full-time credentialed uh, – well, that was, my full, that was my first race as a full-time rider for Winston Cup scene. And uh, I can't even tell you what that emotion was like because I, I felt like walking through that garage that I was that I had reached the the summit of Mount Everest. Um, I, I was working for what I considered to be the best NASCAR racing newspaper ever, and they were paying me to be there. And they were going to pay me to go to the next race and the next race and the next race. So um, my assignment that weekend, that was, that was Harry Gant's last race um, as in the, in the skull 33 car. So that was my assignment that weekend was to kind of follow him around and kind of shadow him and, and report on that. And again, he had been one of my favorites before I got into the sport professionally because he was one of Sandy Estep's favorites. And so it was kind of cool for me, be, for me to be able to call Sandy that weekend and say, well, Harry did this. Harry did that. Harry told me this in the transporter. Uh, he, he, I, I got to meet, I got to meet Burt Reynolds. He was there and, and all <laughs> that kind of thing. So that was, that was, that was kind of cool personally, but it was also, neat for me to be able to share that with her because she had had such a huge influence on my life. What, um, what things from covering Harry's last weekend do you take with you to this day? What things do you remember from that weekend with him? Well, Harry Gant is just Harry Gant. He is, he is the least, (laughs) he is the least, a flashy person I've ever met. And I don't mean that ugly. I, I just mean that he's Harry Gant. He's, he is the guy that, that tools around Harry, uh, Taylorsville, North Carolina in, in his pickup truck and, and working on the weekends or working during the week, building houses and splitting fence posts and whatever. He just happened to be a race car driver during the week or during on the, on the, on the weekends. Uh, he is literally just like me and you. And mm-hmm. so to be able to talk to him as a regular human being and then to, to meet Burt Reynolds and, and see how people kind of fawned over him, uh, they, those two could not possibly have been any more different. Uh, Harry, uh, Harry Gant was, uh, was a regular Joe and Burt Reynolds was a movie star. So that's amazing. That was that weekend. I'm going to make sure I got my timeline right. 94. That was, that would have been the weekend. The last race from Dale was the seven time cup champ too, right? I mean, he clinched it the week before, he I think. Cl- or he two, clinched maybe. it at Rockingham. He had clinched it at Rockingham. 
so the the championship was not that was not that big a focus in Atlanta. Um, the the thing that I remember about Atlanta was, of course, Harry Gant, and, and then Mark Martin won the race. I, I don't I don't remember any sure. details about the race uh, in particular, but Mark Martin won, and um, Harry Gant. Uh, I think he fell out early with whatever, but um, mm-hmm. and he had that he had that throwback he had that throwback paint scheme from his first Skull Bandit car. Um, there's a photo that, that routinely surfaces on the internet, uh, on social media of Harry Gant's last race, where he has the picture taken with his crew before the start of the race. And I'm in the background, I'm standing on pit wall and I've got my headset on my radio headset. And I don't know that I tried to get in a photo or whatever, but yeah, I was standing on pit wall and I had my headset on and I was, I was looking like I was looking down pit road, like I was a, a crew chief or something, but yeah, that, that's what I remember about that weekend. Big shot. What was it like the first time you saw Sandy face to face after that? I'm assuming she probably had plenty of questions about it. Well, uh, Sandy, of course, of course I stay in re- you know, stayed in regular contact with Joe and Sandy both. And the the thing that I remember about Sandy is not necessarily um, calling her, you know, about anything that weekend, but I was able to take her to several races with me, take her and Joe with me to several races. Uh, and in 2002, I was the Bush Series editor at Sane, and she, <laughs> we, had, we had talked before the weekend, you know, before the season started. And, you know, how it, we were talking about me leaving to go to Daytona and blah, 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 and all that stuff. Well, you know how it is when you're, when you're leaving a conversation and you make a comment like, well, come and go with us and we'll see you later, blah, blah, blah. Well, I made that comment to Sandy. I said, well, just pack up and go to Daytona with me, and then I'll see you, you know, all that. Well, I made that comment and I hung up and 30 minutes later, she called me and she said, I've made my plane reservations for Charlotte. Pick me up and I'm going to Daytona with you. And so she went with me to Daytona in 2002 and everything that I've ever done in NASCAR will take a back seat to this. I was able to arrange for her to ride in the pace car on the pace laps of the Bush series race at Daytona. Mm-hmm. She, she actually rode in the second pace car. And so, you know, I covered the race and after the race, of course you do all the interviews and you go through the post race interviews and whatever. So it was probably three hours after the checkered flag until I got back to my car and Sandy was waiting on me. And Aaron, when I got in the car, she was still as giddy as a schoolgirl. Well, I got to do this, and they were doing this, and 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 he said that, and da 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 And the pace car driver said this, and da, you know, and just I mean, she, I mean, she that meant everything in the world to me that I was able to do something for her that that meant that much to me, or that much that meant that much to her. That that was cool. That was very cool. That sounds amazing. It's always neat when you can do something for somebody else, especially when they help drive the kind of passion oh, you yeah. have. If it hadn't been for her and Joe, I would not. Well, if it hadn't been for her and Joe, we, you and I would not be talking right now at all, period. Because without them, I would, I would have had no interest in NASCAR whatsoever. 
Well, thankfully we had them and we had you. <laughs> and now we've gotten to we've gotten to go through your top five, Rick. Uh, any any thoughts on your top five now that you've gone through them all? Anything stick out? Anything? No. And it's funny. I was the Bush Series editor at Sane, and I did not include a single Bush Series race in my top five. I, I think that's probably because all every race, every Bush Series race that I covered meant a lot to me. I, I was a big, I was, I was a bigger fish in a smaller pond. I was, I was writing for Winston Cup Scene, the sport's biggest newspaper, and I was covering the Bush Series, and I, you know. Uh, every race in the Bush series was special to me. I, I can say that with all honesty. It's a special series. All right, Rick, with that all said and done, I have one little thing to put you through to wrap things up. It's going to go by a little bit quicker for you. It's called the top 10. It's a quick hit section okay. and it'll end with the chance to wrap things up for you. So if you don't mind, we will just roll what right on. Win? First up. What do I want? Uh, my, what do I, un- what do I my win? undying my undying gratitude. <laughs> okay. All right. And maybe that's, a, sh- okay, maybe a shout Let's out, go. maybe a shout out <laughs> on social media. Uh, okay. All right. Cool. First up, you've already, you might've already answered some of these, but first up your first race. That I ever attended. The it can first be attended or watched, whatever one stands out. The first race, the first Winston cup race I ever attended was 1990. Uh, spring Atlanta race. 90 spring Atlanta. Okay. Number two, worst race. Just for you personally, it can be on whatever metric you want to weigh it. Uh, the 2000 New Hampshire Bush Series race. Fair. Number three, opposite, best race. The 2003 IRP Bush Series race. Oh, I live in Indianapolis. You're speaking right to my heart on that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Number four, your favorite series. The 1997 through 1998 Bush, or 1997 through 1999 Bush series. Bush series, all right. Number five, your favorite driver growing up, if you had one. Richard Petty. Richard Petty. The opposite, number six, your least favorite driver growing up, if you had one. Man, I'm a journalist. I'm supposed to be objective. (laughs) Okay, all right. Um, Sandy Estep hated Jeff Bodine, and therefore, before I got into the sport professionally, I was not a Jeff Bodine fan. I could run for office. I could run for office. <laughs> I was a childhood Dale Senior fan, so naturally I didn't like Jeff Gordon when I was a kid. So, of course, the first one I ever asked a question in the media center was Jeff Gordon because that's just how that's just how life goes, right? Yep. Number, number seven, what all tours do you watch today, if any? I watch Cup. I watch Xfinity. I watch Trucks. And that's probably about it. NASCAR National. Number eight, what, what is or was your dream job or moment? Working for Winston Cup scene. You nailed it. That was my dream Number job. Number nine. Still is. 
I hear that. Number nine, one person or group you would recommend to follow or watch in the industry if you have one. Just give somebody a shout out. If I was in charge of Sane and Sane was still publishing, there are two people that I would hire tomorrow. Uh, and I think those two people would not be a surprise to anybody. I think those two people uh, have have earned their spot. Uh, and those those two people would be Matt Weaver and Kelly Crandall. They they are the mm-hmm. real deal. They are very oh, yeah. good at what they're they do. <laughs> well deserved. And lastly, number 10, one opportunity to engage. Where can people find you? Where can they follow your work? Where are you? Follow us on Twitter at the Scene Vault, and listen to the podcast. You can find it anywhere, uh, any of the major NASCAR, or ma- any of the major uh, podcasting platforms, and also on YouTube at the Scene Vault. You're here. Well, that does it for us, Rick. Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your top five. folks rick houston's top five what a treat right for a lot of my listeners that i know are nascar fans and diehard nascar faithful hope you enjoyed that trip back to the past with some of the sports history through the eyes of one of the journalists that covered it pretty neat to hear him talk about the races and moments where he was going through such extreme struggles trying to make it into the beat and then being able to get cool opportunities out of it like checking harry gant for his last race weekend Uh, I'd like to thank Rick for taking the time to speak with me for this podcast. He's very busy with his own podcast and plans. Uh, He also probably covers more miles than me, which is rare because I run a lot. So I appreciate Rick carving out some time to talk with me about this and reminisce on some of his own story when he's used to spending most of his time telling others. Thanks to Brad Perez for the sweet beats I use on the intro and outro of this podcast. And thank you, of course, to our many lovely patrons at Motorsports Beat. Today, I'd like to toss a shout out to Jeff Brown and Rand Hoffman, who've both been with me since August of 2018. That's a couple OGs, y'all. They've been with me since before Motorsports Beat itself was even a thing. With that said, thank you to all of you for listening and allowing Rick Houston to talk about a few of the races that have meant the most of his career. Now, next up on the podcast, we're taking a trip from Stock Car Land over to two-wheel territory. I'm going to have Monster Energy Supercross rider Adam Intiknap on to talk about a few of the races that have meant the most to his career as he's risen up to the 450SX class. But until then, this has been the Motorsports Beat Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Beard 93 and I'll catch you guys again when we get back on the beat. See ya.